Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. On this week's show, John Wiener is joining us to talk about the surprisingly controversial award that Pan America just gave to Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical magazine. And Tom talks to Leila Lalamy about her new book. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Our colleague Layla Lalami was shortlisted for a Pulitzer. Yeah, and we had her into the studio yesterday, and we did a, a long interview with her, which we'll put on. It's a, a video interview. She's got a new book. It's called The Moor's Account, and it's the story of a Moroccan slave who comes across the Atlantic, shipwrecks with a Spanish crew on the coast of Florida. And three Spanish, actually noblemen and accountants and not just everyday sailors, they survived along with this slave. They made their way across the southern United States, living with different Indian tribes for years and years and years and years. And Cabeza de Vaca, who's one of the one of the Spaniards, goes back and writes a story about it. We know what the three Spaniards, what their stories are, because they all had to testify to a commission about why they had abandoned their ship. And we know nothing about the Moroccan slave, although various historians have tried to reconstruct who he might have been. So Layla has set about in this novel to imagine his story. These four survivors, among whom the very famous Cabeza de Vaca, ended up being the first outsiders to cross North America. And they lived with indigenous tribes and had to reinvent themselves in the course of eight years. And so their position shifted. They went from being these conquerors to becoming conquered and to basically have to live as slaves and servants of, of indigenous tribes. And then they reinvented themselves and became faith healers and sort of just basically had to learn how to survive. And they were brought to the seat of the Spanish Empire, which is present-day Mexico City, and they were asked to provide testimony about what happened. And I often joked that these expeditions were sort of the software startup companies of their day because you took a lot of risk and you invested money and you had no idea whether it was going to pay off or not. So when when expeditions failed, there needed to be an accounting. Uh, for example, Cabeza de Vaca was the treasurer of the expedition and his role was to ensure that whatever gold was found, that the king would receive a fifth of it. That's his, <laughs> that's his role. So uh, there needed to be an accounting of what happened. Mm -hmm. And we know about Cabeza de Vaca because... <clears throat> After Cabeza de Vaca returned to Spain, he published his own narrative about what happened. And it is the earliest narrative we have of Spanish exploration of North America. And it is a fantastic document. It's called Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition. And it's very rich in ethnographic detail and very telling in the kind of complex relationships that existed between Cabeza de Vaca and Narvaez and the other members of the expedition. I mean, immediately, the idea for the novel came about because every time you hear about Estebanico, it is in the context of his color. So you hear that he is the Negro, or it is in the context of his role, the slave. Even though he played a very crucial role, which is that he was a scout for them, and then he learned indigenous languages and became a translator. And so that's a fantastic role. It's a very powerful role. And yet in the book, he's completely negated. And there's all these gaps and silences in the book, particularly about indigenous people. 
and even more so about indigenous women. I, as soon as I read the book, I thought, I have to write this novel from his point of view. The only problem is I know nothing about the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go and educate myself and then, and then take a leap. Once you decide you're gonna do it, do you have the, you have the Cabeza de Vaca's text kind of mapped out in front of you and you're going, you're following it moment by moment or? Yeah, so that, that was essentially the first step is at least I need to know where they landed and exactly where they went. And it's by no means clear when you read Cabeza de Vaca's book exactly what the journey was. I was fortunate in the sense that this is a, an expedition that has fascinated academics. And so I was able to draw on research by people who have spent their entire lives trying to retrace the steps of Cabeza de Vaca. So I had, I already had maps, I had advantages that other people probably wouldn't have had if they had tried to write this book a couple of centuries ago, you know. But then the bigger problem was understanding who Estebanico was before and after the story, because the expedition is just one part of his life and certainly one part of his memoir. I wanted to tell the story of who he was before and who he ended up being after. And, and what did you know about 16th century Morocco? Very little as well. I was not a, a particularly assiduous student of history. <laughs> I mean, I knew, of course I know. I mean, this dynasty rose and this dynasty fell. But I mean, you know, not the, deep, the kind of thing that you need to, to know in order to write a novel, which is things like, what did people wear? What did they eat? What was cuisine like in, in Azamore in the 16th century? You know, what were imports and exports in that trading town? How did Estebanico end up in slavery? How did he become Estebanico? How did Mustafa become Estebanico? So all these questions I had to answer. And honestly, the most enjoyable part of the book were the parts that I didn't know anything about because I could exercise complete creative freedom and just create this character however I wanted. And that was really enjoyable. Some of your sources, I assume, are uh, Moroccan his historians mm -hmm. who are doing a kind of anal school mm -hmm. history of private life, history of uh, everyday life. Mm -hmm. Even though he was negated in sort of Cabeza de Vaca's book, there have been some academics who have been interested in him, particularly in the 20th century. And what has fascinated me about everybody's approach to Estebanico is how they want to claim him for themselves. So for example, one of the earliest sources I found is a man by the name of Rayford Logan who wrote in, I think, the 1940s. I don't have my research in front of me. But he's an African-American historian. And so his interest was to prove that this was the first African explorer of America. Now you turn and you go and see somebody like this anthropologist named Hassan Ilahian, who is at the University of Kentucky. And he's Moroccan and he's Berber. So then there's this whole thing about the Berber heritage of Mustafa. And then you read about Robert Goodwin's book, where he argues that, in fact, he was not Moroccan at all, that he must have been brought from sub-Saharan Africa and brought to Azamor, which is a, sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how mixed the heritage of Moroccans is, which is that it's, it is African and it is Berber and it is Arab, it is all these things. I mean, we are mixed, we're mongrels. And so, I, I mean, I have friends who are Moroccan who are black, and I have friends who are Moroccan who, you, you know, look completely white and blonde and blue-eyed, and it ranges, it's a huge range. All these historians, these different people who have been interested in Estebanico, in some sense want to claim him for themselves. And has anybody, you know, since there are people claiming this, this character for themselves, anybody that's complaining about your version of it? Complaining about my version of it? No. But, you know, you know, give them time. <laughs> Not yet. 
comprende lo que sufro yo. You were listening to the LARB Radio Hour here on KPFK. Pues ya no puedo and so Layla, is this going to change her career? Layla Lalami, you know, shortlisted. I mean, that means she was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Yeah. She was one yeah. of four finalists right. with Richard Ford, and mm. yeah, she's named yeah. among the among the greats now, and that's a that's a major thing. Well, it's still very recent. I only found out about ten days ago, and so it's really too early for me to tell you what effect it's having on me. But besides it, jubilation, yes. <laughs> It was, you know, honestly, it was it was a fantastic surprise. And I wasn't so much happy for me, but also for just for the character, because I felt like this was a person who had never been allowed to be part of history, had never been recognized in any way. And to be able to tell his story and to see that story get some recognition, it made me feel, I don't know, it made me feel happy for him. Have you ever served on a, a prize committee? I have uh, never served on a prize committee. Uh, Laurie Weiner, I believe you have served on a I prize have, committee. I have. I served on the Pulitzer Prize Committee twice. For theater. For theater. Right? And I've served on prize committees as well. And there's this, you know, this idea that everybody's second choice is the winner. Mm-hmm. Because the things that people feel really, really strongly about are often because they know that they're they're championing something that not everybody's automatically going to like, and their second choice is a second is one that everybody agrees is great, but it's the, everybody's second choice, right? So for me to be on that short list means somebody thought that you should have won it, obviously, right? At least one person thought you should have won it. And like so much else, prizes are so entirely political, really, to the degree that you really have to question the validity of all of them, in a sense, right? Oh, what do you mean? Well, people have agendas, and they try to advance those personal agendas in the uh, the awarding of prizes. and Like a, the personal agenda of excellence? I don't think it's always excellence, actually, Tom. <laughs> I think people have other agendas. Well, people, I think people yeah. are, I think that's why there's often such emotional debate around even something that we could say as silly as the Academy Awards, because people really want it to be about fairness and quality and... And merit. And merit, and it so often isn't, that people get upset. My favorite award was always the Oscar given to John Wayne for (laughs) True Grit, which Mm. was awarded in the year Dustin Hoffman appeared in Midnight Cowboy. And I was a kid at the time watching, and as a kid, I knew prizes didn't mean anything at that moment. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, because often people get, you know, they, they thought that might be his last chance to get one. Of course, one, right? of course. And, so and he was, was cancer-ridden, and they needed to career heap, award. heap the laurel on his head. Another one is, why has Philip Roth never won the Nobel Prize? Well, the Nobel's famous for picking people out of obscurity and and And, 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 who passing all, and over. also, if they're armed American, that, that's great, too. They do have a bias, which is fine. Well, you could say that they don't, they don't have our bias, which is to think that all the American stuff is is important. But you know that there are other literatures out there. So when you say the only criterion is excellence, I would submit that's hardly accurate. Well, it's hard. It's, of course, it's not accurate. And excellence is always excellence within some set of other co- commitments. True. And if we're not talking about mathematics, excellence is subjective. Yeah. I do think Layla's book is great. Did it come out of left field to be nominated, or did it win another award? Of it did not win another award that I know of. So, and what are the politics of a book like that, written by a writer who is not famous, finding itself in the position of being nominated for a prize like that? 
It's not like Layla's unknown, right? She's not unknown, she's, but she's but again, a, not writes a, for the nation regularly. She's a, she's she's a she's a figure in the in the literary world. It's just intriguing to me how something that wasn't in the uh, the oxygen to that degree is is a Pulitzer 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 <laughs> finalist. It's interesting that it's about telling someone's story that hadn't been told before, which is something that we. Like I'm not sure what absolutely. that look means. Absolutely, no, that's but, my. I mean, that's my. That is the essence of American literary culture, right? Is to kind of constantly be finding new populations that you're going to uh, right, represent for the reading public. That's what we do as a literary culture. One fiction prize that I was on the jury for, you know, you read 200 novels, and the ones that I had never heard of the author before, they perked me up more than. You know, you read a Richard Ford book and you think, oh, yeah, it's, it, here's another good Richard Ford novel. You read a Philip Roth and you think, here's another Phil, great Philip Roth novel. Is it his best novel? And therefore, should you give him the prize for that mm-hmm. one? There's ways in which having a, a long track record probably can work against you. As, as George Carol Oates. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She was one of the people who absented herself from the Penn USA dinner. Ah, uh, let's, let's talk about that. But, but let's, in, in order to do that, let's bring in uh, our friend John Wiener, who is here to talk about his letter to the nation. We're very happy to have a guest with us today. John Wiener is a professor of history at UC Irvine. He is a contributor to the nation and an editor at LARB. And we brought him in to discuss the kerfuffle going on right now between the award that Penn America has planned to give Charlie Hebdo and the backlash that has caused among certain members of the organization. John, would you uh, tee this up for the listeners? Penn decided to give its Courage Award to Charlie Ebdo, and sort of surprising to lots of people, five table hosts, including one former president of Penn, withdrew from the dinner saying they didn't want to be part of honoring Charlie Ebdo. The five included... Rachel Kushner, our own Los Angeles novelist, author of The Flamethrowers, which I loved. Peter Carey, the double booker winner. Uh, Francine Prose, former president of Penn. And Joyce Carol Oates, who's written, I don't know, what, two dozen books or something like that? All too scary for me. Teju Cole, the Nigerian-American novelist. This is the kerfuffle. The issue raised by the uh, five who withdrew, and they circulated a letter that was then signed by, what, 140 people? Something like that. I was one of them. Um, Our view is Charlie Hebdo has an absolute right to publish uh, cartoons that are disgusting and insulting to Muslims, We defend that right. They certainly shouldn't be killed for it. But we don't think they should be honored for publishing disgusting cartoons. And on the other side is Salman Rushdie, right? Rushdie uh, called us pussies. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) I took the words right out of my mouth, Tom. (laughs) Plead guilty. Me, me, Rachel, uh, Peter Carey, Joyce Carol Oates. He said he, he he called them six pussies. Now there's 140 pussies. Let's give an example of one of the a representative cartoon, just so we can know what we're talking about. It's a, a depiction of Mohammed who's naked and on all fours, kind of offering up his butt for sex. It has a caption, Mohammed, just in case you're not sure who this grotesquely ugly person is, it's Mohammed, a star is born, it says. 
there's a star over his anus and his junk is kind of hanging out in very unattractive, unappealing manner. Okay, so <laughs> we all, I mean, we all know what it feels like to be 12 years old and to be told, you know, you can't do this and just go, I'm going to do it. And people do say that, you know, part of the problem is that in France, of course, the largely Algerian and Moroccan minority is very poor, way underemployed faces discrimination in every way at every corner. And, and then, of course, there are people who say that the Jews of Paris are terrified. They can't go out uh, because the Muslims are beating them up on the street. I mean, it's a it's a fraught situation and it's a tough situation. And so to kind of throw gasoline on, on those flames is an, is an interesting choice, but not the same choice as making fun of uh, Rick Santorum. No, although they are equal opportunity offenders, like many of the great practitioners of satire. And let me read the name of the award. It's the Penn 2015 Tony and James Goodale Freedom of Expression Courage Award. The word courage, I think, is the key. Are they not incredibly courageous, in fact, in this environment where armed people are empowered to take the law into their own hands and and rewrite it in their own terms? Aren't they incredibly courageous, in fact, to continue publishing? And should they not be honored for that courage? Because by pushing the limits, they allow everybody else the freedom to express things that perhaps might not be extreme. But, you know, first they came for the Jews, as they said years ago. Well, there's different kinds of courage. There's courage in attacking the powerful and exposing their lies and crimes. And I think it's very different to have the courage to attack the poor, the excluded, the despised, the outcasts. And this is a distinction I think is worth uh, making, and especially when you're deciding who gets the award. You know, I've heard it described by the people who don't want Charlie Hebdo to get the award that they they're punching down and that was uh, Gary Trudeau's line yeah and I don't know how you punch down to someone who's shooting at you the protest is not on behalf of the murderers the protest is just about who should be honored here it's the Muslims of France who are very much uh, native born but very much underemployed and excluded I think there's no question that it's punching down to ridicule and insult this group. Now, it's true there is a a militant, fundamentalist, extremely objectionable element of the Muslim community, and there's a fight among Muslims about what to do about this. There's The French Muslims are the most secular, the most, quote, moderate of, of all the Muslim communities of Europe. Those of us who are against fundamentalism would like to help them in their struggle. I don't think these cartoons help them. I think the effect of these cartoons is more likely to drive the secular and the moderate Muslims back into the fold in the face of this kind of, you know, disgusting, insulting attack on the prophet. My name is Seth Greenland, and I am here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. There obviously is a line where free speech meets hate speech, and these kinds of controversies 
are always around that line and what it is and where it is. What's bothering me about it is a lot of people are, are saying it's very clear cut. Uh, for instance, you quote Kurt Anderson in your piece for The Nation saying that this is one of those incidents that makes a clear line and you're either on one side or the other. But I actually can kind of see both sides. I mean, that's not very exciting to talk about, but but it... <laughs> It seems like both sides do really have a point, as they often do during these issues. For instance, the Nazi march in Skokie. These are difficult, difficult issues. Can I just say my, my one line about the Nazi march in Skokie? Mm-hmm. I'm very glad that ACLU defended the right of Nazis to march in Skokie. I'm also glad the ACLU did not give an award to the Nazis for marching in Skokie. But I think making the yes. comparison between Nazis and Skokie and satirists it really misses the point, actually, because the intention is completely different. We are told, uh, those of us who object to the award, that we don't understand France. And there's a lot of truth there. I, you know, Charlie Hebdo published weekly for, what, 30 years or something like that. I've only, longer. I've only seen a handful of these cartoons. There, We are told, well, these are all about very specific issues in French politics, French culture, refers to French cartooning. And just to look at them in the abstract and say, well, that looks horrible to me, we, is wrong. We have to read them in context. So I, I actually did a little work on the most horrible looking of these cartoons. The other one was on the same page as the one Mohammed Astar is born. The same ugly, grotesque cartoon of Mohammed naked, holding his butt in the air. He is saying to a cameraman, do you like my ass? Now, it turns out this actually is something very specific. It took me a while to find out about it, but not with Google. You can find out these things. This was published in 2012 on the occasion of a scandalous YouTube video about Muhammad that was uh, outraged the entire Muslim world, and French Muslims knew all about it. We didn't pay very much attention to it in the United States, I don't think. It was called The Innocence of Muslims. And it was a very insulting, horrible thing about Muhammad. So the line, do you like my ass, this is actually Brigitte Bardot's line in the 1963 film by Jean-Luc Godard, Contempt. Now, any uh, boy who was alive in 1963, as I was, finds this an unforgettable scene. Well known to Godard fans, well known in France. I don't know if it's well known to young Muslims in France, but indeed the the cameraman in the cartoon is Godard circa 1963. And undoubtedly this is known to French people. So this is a very specific cartoon about a specific thing that refers to something very specific to French culture, but what actually is the point? Mohammed is the new Bardot of no. friend of yeah. France. Well, there is uh, there is some cognitive dissonance when you're told you don't understand the sophistication of this image, and you look at the image and it is an extremely crude image that a twelve year old indeed <laughs> could not only understand but could have drawn. Um, and and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking if Larry Flint was doing satire for. The French uh, population, this well, is what it would look like. And that's what some of them look like to me. And your nation piece really did explain a lot of these to me and was very helpful for me to kind of decode them. But there's a lot of stuff in those cartoons that it just doesn't need to be decoded. It's like the Kuhn figure from the turn of the century in America. It's a very, very specific Muslim face, which is, I don't know, comes out of, you know, that was admitted sometime in the early Afghan war or something. It was a, It's an old image already, and it always gets put in there and it's offensive 
on the face of it. You're absolutely right. But is it not very significant that Charlie Hebdo does this with all kinds of groups? And is it not paternalistic in a way to say the Muslim sensibilities need to be protected? Well, n- no. But no one else is doing I don't know anybody saying that. Is anybody saying that? The law says Jewish sensibilities must be protected. The law in France... Well, but by the same token, Charlie Hebdo has hardly been uh, bereft of images that Jews would find offensive. Although the numbers are are significantly different. And Penn is not giving them an award for having the courage to draw crude cartoons of Jews. Because it takes a lot more courage to draw them of Muslims. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, probably when they were picking out who to honor this year with their Courage Award. You know, they could have given it to Lawrence Wright, right? Or, or something like Snowden that. Or... or Snowden or whatever. But it does bring attention to the organization. I can't believe that this was not at least part of their thinking that got them the most ink, the most airtime, so et cetera. So you, you think it was just all a, a publicity play? It's going to bring attention to my organization, and that's got to be good. I love your cynicism, but I don't know if I I quite (laughs) buy it, because I think that the people who bestow these awards are thinking, well, this isn't going to be that controversial. They murdered murdered a lot of people, and we're giving them a courage award. Who's going to object? Mm -hmm. And I think the canary in the coal mine was when Gary Trudeau was given the the Polk Award last month and spoke about how Charlie Hebdo was, was wrong to do what they did. And that surprised a lot of people. But he did it first, and that set the table for you guys, John, and your colleagues. I just want to say I don't deserve any credit for this at all. I My idea was that Tom should get Rachel to write something for the Los Angeles Review of Books. But instead of that, Rachel said I should sign the letter. But you've weighed in now with your piece in The Nation and weighed in in a particular way. You do see the other side argument, right? That is, in fact, there is something courageous about, you know, even if you don't think the humor is particularly sophisticated, even if you don't think that the humor yeah, is well, on I, point. What, what I can see, I'm uh, my piece is at thenation.com is specifically a response to a piece by Katha Pollitt defending the award, and I understand her argument very well. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalist Islam in the world is one of the most important sources of oppression of women. And to criticize this, to attack this strongly, to mock, to ridicule them is an important political task. In the French context, it's also part of a, what, 300-year-old tradition of secularism and, and ridiculing yeah. the Pope. And mm-hmm. this is the, the, the French left has been doing this since the 18th century. And there's no reason to be intimidated now from continuing this very important campaign against worldwide uh, oppression. The problem is that if you were showing a cartoon that lampooned the treatment of women in the Muslim world, there might be a point to it. Mm -hmm. This cartoon that we have been talking about, there is no point being made. But they're not being given the award for the one cartoon. I mean, let's contextualize it. They're being given the award for what all the work they've been doing. I'm asking, though, is this cartoon representative of the kind of work that they do at the magazine. I don't... And if you want to help women in the Muslim world escape from fundamentalist oppression, does this cartoon 
help or hurt, I think it hurts them. If you wanted to help them, you would give an award to a Muslim woman who had stood up to fundamentalists. And there there are... Yes, plenty. There are right. plenty who are, have been forced into exile, who are accomplished novelists, writers, journalists. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think... You know, you have you have to be a little more specific than say, well, Islam in the world is a oppressive force, and therefore, whatever you do to criticize it is good. Thanks for joining us, John. My pleasure. You've wasted another perfectly good half hour listening to Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, and myself, Seth Greenland, on the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK. It's so efficient, isn't it? You get to waste an hour in only a half an hour. <laughs> 90.7 KPFK. I want to thank John Wiener and Layla Lalami, our producer and moral center, Jerry Gorin, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. This is the LARB Radio Hour, KPFK 90.7 a podcast radio. See you next week. With a